Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for God's word. Father, as we read your word today, we, we receive the blessing in the book of Revelation for the one who hears and receives and obeys this, this book. So, Father, we thank you for each week as we get to ready study this book of Revelation that you would just help us to receive that blessing as we put it into practice. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome. Welcome to those watching online. Today we are in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to talk about the church at Pergamos. So as you turn there, I heard a story about an old hunter. He was hunting with a gun in one hand, a cane in the other hand. And he ran into an old brown bear. And he was getting ready to pull the trigger. And the brown bear raised his paw and said, hold on one second. Shouldn't we talk this out before you pull the trigger? And the hunter was a little startled. He had never heard a brown bear talk. So he said, okay, what do you have to say? And the brown bear said, well, let's compromise. Why don't you tell me what you want and I'll tell you what I want. And let's see if we can work out an agreement that suits both parties. And the hunter said, "Okay, it is cold. I'm an old man and I need a nice, warm winter coat, specifically a fur coat. And he gave the bear a little wink and the bear said, "Okay, I think we can work that out. I'm really hungry. It's time for me to hibernate for the winter and I need a full stomach. So the man put his gun down and he walked with the brown bear with his cane into the woods. Five minutes later, only the bear emerged and the brown bear got his wish of a full stomach and the hunter got his wish of a fur coat. That's how compromise works. You have to think through that one a little bit. Someone always gets the short end of the stick, right? So compromise is good in some respects, like marriage is good when husband and wife have a disagreement, you can compromise. It's good in sometimes business dealings where compromise is not good is when it comes to your Christian faith and morality. And we're living in today a day of compromise. So this church at Pergamos has so much application of the day we live in, because what what we're going to talk about this church at Pergamos, they had moved out of conviction and into compromise. So let's read Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And I've entitled this sermon, Sleeping with Satan, how to move out of compromise and into conviction. Verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I'll also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. May God bless his word. So today I want to give you four must do's on how to move out of compromise and into conviction. And the reason why I say must do's is when someone is in compromise, it's maybes and everything's gray. It's a world full of grays, but the world of conviction is black and white with no gray. So the first must do of moving from compromise to conviction is remember just how powerful God is. In verse 12, it says to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has a sharp two edged sword. First of all, let's do a little background of Pergamos, also known as Pergamum. First of all, this city was pretty big. It was between one and two hundred thousand people, and it was known as a, a center of culture. It was a place where people would go and explore. It was about 20 miles inland from Smyrna. And it was called the greatest city in Asia Minor just because of its prominence. And it really was loyal to Rome and had a big emphasis on emperor worship that they had no problem with burning incense to Caesar. So when you see all this in the pagan cults we're going to talk about, you're going to see how it was easy for the church to compromise. And in Revelation, each of the seven churches, the names usually has significance for the church. Last week. We talked about Smyrna and Smyrna. The name means myrrh. And we talked about it was a a church under persecution and that when myrrh is crushed, that's when it releases its potential only after it's crushed. So the name had a significant meaning. Well, the name for Pergamos or Pergamum means mixed marriage, mixed marriage. And you're like, what is that referring to? It's the idea that when the church is married to the state then you got problems that arise when the church is married to Christ and also tries to be married to the world. Then you're going to have problems that arise. So notice how Jesus reveals himself in verse 12. These things says he who has a sharp two edged sword. This was interesting because the Roman proconsul had a sword, the sword of the state. And maybe what Jesus was referring to is that he wanted the church to feel fear his sword more than the sword of Rome. So when you think about Jesus, you think about Jesus holding the little lamb right in his arms. You think about Jesus with the little children. You think about Jesus dying on the cross. How many of you think of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth? Anybody? That's not a picture of Jesus we get. So it's like, why would Jesus reveal himself as the one with the two edged sword coming out of his mouth? Well, as we've gone through the series in Revelation, we mentioned Revelation can be understood when you go back to Old and New Testament. In Hebrews 4.12, the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than what? Any double edged sword. So here's the idea. God's word is a double edged sword. And what it means when it's double edged, it's effective and efficient, effective because it cuts in both directions, efficient because it divides to the inner core. 
So here's the idea. Depending on which side of the blade you're on determines whether it's a benefit or it's something that's not very beneficial to you. In other words, if I reject Christ on this side of the sword, there's salvation. If I accept him, if I reject him on the other side of the sword is what? There's judgment to the church. If I lean into his word, there's blessing and I can receive it and I can walk in it. If I compromise with the word, there's discipline. I lose my power. So on the two edged sword, Jesus says, listen, I'm coming to you and I'm coming to you with a serious nature. So in American culture, this would be like I am Bob and I'm coming to you with a gun locked and loaded. I would take Bob very seriously. Right. So Jesus says, I'm coming to you with a two edged sword. So, church, listen to this message, because what I'm about to say has such relevance to your life. So when you think about this, it's a different picture of Jesus. Him coming with a two-edged sword. And it makes me think of Acts 2.37. I'll put the sword here. It's not real, so don't worry. I won't cut myself. In Acts 2.37, it says Peter preached a message, and it says the people were cut to the heart. So in other words, when God proclaims his word, it has power. It has effectiveness. How did God create the world? Someone tell me. He spoke it into existence. So here's the reality about Jesus, that when he speaks, worlds are created. And when he speaks to the church, we have to heed his word because his word is more powerful than any human made sword. His word is far more powerful than the sword of Rome because his word creates worlds. Worlds were created from his word. So the second must do if we want to move out of compromise and into conviction is we must stay forever true to Jesus in a world that seems to be so dominated by Satan. Look in your scripture at verse 13. Jesus looks at the church at Pergamos and says, I know your works. In other words, he says, I know what you're doing for me. I know that it's hard. I know sometimes you want to quit, but don't quit because I'm going to reward you. Now, as a Christian, we're not saved by works, but we are rewarded according to our works. Last week, we talked about the judgment day for the Christian is kind of like high school graduation. When you graduate, everyone graduates, but those who put in extra work receive superlatives. They they receive rewards. And the same is true with Christ. And notice how he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. So why would why would Jesus say that Satan has a throne in Pergamos? Well, there are at least five different focuses outside of Jesus that the people in the city worship. Now, they had many gods, but let me give you the top five. First of all, you have Zeus. In fact, in Pergamos, there was a big throne built to Zeus and they would worship Zeus as one of their gods. You had Eucalyptus and Eucalyptus was the god of healing. And you see this person with a staff and the snake went around it. And in my research, I found out that only six percent of medical doctors knew this. We had medical doctors in the first service and they didn't know this. But you know where the symbol for medicine comes from? It comes from Eucalyptus. And you're like, why is that? Well, in that day, what they did in Pergamos, Eucalyptus, the god of healing and medicine, they would mix medicine with superstition. So one of the ways the worshipers that you would come to the temple sick and if you were really daring and willing to try something different, alternative medicine, they would have you lie down in a room full of snakes 
and the snakes, the idea is if they crawled over you and they began to touch you, eucalyptus would release its healing power over you. How many of you would sign up for the snake room? I would not do that, right? So that's, that's, where, that's where we get our symbol for medicine. So now you know when you see the medicine symbol, it's eucalyptus, the god of healing. You also had Athena. Athena was another deity they worship. Athena was some, some, someone that people connected with more than others. And then if you didn't like Athena, there's Dionysus. Dionysus was the fun god. If you wanted to celebrate with wine and parties, I, I don't Google the name images because a lot of these are almost half nude pictures of Dionysus. He was the party god. So if you wanted to party, Dionysus was your guy. And then if you wanted a tangible person to worship, the emperor worship. That was Caesar. And they worshiped the human being. So Pergamos grew so dark spiritually, the people in the city as a whole had turned away from God. And it was known as one of the places where Satan set up his throne. Now, when you think about that, like how could Satan set up his throne in Pergamos? The idea is that Satan can be only one place at one time. A lot of times we say the devil is messing with me today. He's tempting me. Well, Satan himself is not. It's one of his fallen angels. We know from scripture that one third of the angels fell and went after Satan. So since Satan is not omnipresent, he's after bigger fish to fry. He's not after you. Okay, he is after you, but not directly. It's it's to his fallen angels. So the idea was Pergamos was so evil that as Satan roams to and fro throughout the whole world, Pergamos was a place where he felt at home. He would set up his throne as one of his outposts, not his only throne, but one of his thrones were there. It's kind of like in America. We notice that some cities are more sinful than others. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is known as Sin City and they celebrate it. Right. So that's the idea. Pergamos was so dark that Satan felt right at home. So Jesus said this is where his throne is. So church, can we talk a little bit? Can we talk? All right. Asheville is known in the South as one of the New Age Meccas in the whole South. Now, there's other New Age Meccas, but Asheville is known as one of the most liberal cities in the South. So in the middle of the bubble, bu- buckle of the Bible Belt, try to say that three times fast, Asheville is known as a New Age liberal Mecca. So what Jesus said to Pergamos, I know where you live. He says to the church of Arden, I know where you live. I know that a lot of the city is diametrically opposed to what you teach here. I know a lot of the city will call you names because you hold to traditional biblical values. But what we got to do is not go into compromise, because here's what would happen. In that day, you were required once a year, if you didn't worship Caesar, at least to burn incense to Caesar as a sign of respect. And some of the Christians were tempted, well, I'm not worshiping Caesar. I just want to burn incense to show my respect. So the idea was to compromise. And when it comes to worship, you can't compromise. When it comes to truth and morality, you can't compromise. In Asheville, we're known more for our bar and beer city than where our churches. Right. Asheville's called beer city, not the city of churches. And Jesus has called us to be a city set on a hill. He's called us to be a radiant light, to shine our light to the world to see. So here's the thing. When you're tempted to compromise, I want you to hear the words of Christ. I know where you live. So be the light that shines brightly. On your listening guide, there's uh, under point two, there is a blank. 
where I want you guys to put down one person that you're going to pray for. And here's your 2023, 2023 challenge. You may not can reach the entire world, but can you reach one person in your world? Can you reach one person with the gospels? I want you to write down someone that God has in your heart. It could be a family member, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, write down their name and have them as the object of your prayer that you pray for every day. And you ask God for an opportunity to share Christ with that person. Because here's the idea. The darker it is, the more God's light's going to shine through you. So as you move out of compromise and into conviction, or for many of us, as we stay in conviction, pray for that person. God's going to show you the person. And our goal this year is each one to reach one. Every year we challenge the church, find one person that you're trying to win to Christ. And it's not just getting them saved, but it's discipling them. It's training them in the ways of the Lord. It's bringing them to church. It's bringing them to your small group. It's spending time with them. Notice in verse 13, he says, you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, who is my faithful martyr, who was killed among you. Now, historians, we don't know a lot about Antipas, but according to church tradition, he was the influential leader at the church in Pergamos. And some even think he could have been the pastor. But because he did not bow the knee to Caesar, what they did is they killed him. And according to tradition, it's pretty gruesome. They boiled him to death in a brass bowl that was the shape of a bull. So think about that, boiling him to death. Just the heat turned up and he he died as a martyr. So Jesus is referring to him as an example. Remember Antipas. He was faithful. He never compromised. You too be faithful. The third must do if you want to get out of compromise and move into conviction is examine your, your heart for areas of compromise and come clean. Examine your areas of compromise. Tony Campola wrote a book called Who Switched the Price Tax? And this book is based upon a true story. There was an unusual robber that went into a store at nighttime. And this robber didn't take anything. That was what was unusual. But what this unknown robber did is they switched the price tags in the store. They went into a department store. So the next day it was a madhouse at this department store. People went to go check out a flat screen TV or entertainment system and it was a few dollars. They went to go buy a pack of gum and it was a few hundred dollars. And people were like, who switched the price tags? I mean, this is crazy. And can I ask your church in our culture, in our Christian values, who switched the price tags? So many of us have changed our values over the years. And that may not be true to you, but maybe it's true of people you know. Some of us have given up our Christian convictions for comfort. Some of us have given away our morals for the pursuit of more money. And there's nothing wrong with money in of itself, but when it replaces your morality so you can pursue more of it, we need to realize that God has a plan and we don't need to switch the tags. We don't need to switch the value system. God's the one who sets the values and we respond to it. So I encourage you not to switch the price tags. Don't exchange your biblical Christian worldview for a secular worldview of the world, a secular humanistic worldview where whatever the culture says, we go with it. So what we find out is if Satan can't destroy the church through persecution, Satan will join the church. And you're like, how does Satan join the church? He joins the church through trying to corrupt it through perversion. So Jesus gives this analogy, come clean from the doctor of, doctrine of Balaam. And you're like, what is the doctrine of Balaam? 
Well, if you're taking notes, it's Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And Balaam goes back to the Old Testament days. There is this king, Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he knew the children of Israel were conquering kingdoms and he didn't want them to conquer Moab. So he decided to hire a person that was known as a prophet or a seer, someone that had connection with God. And he offered to pay him a lot of money so that he could curse the children of Israel. So in Numbers 22 and 23, we see Balaam. He's like, I don't I can't do it. I can only speak what God says, but I do want to make a little money. And he's wrestling with it. So he goes to try to curse the children of Israel and all of a sudden his donkey starts talking to him and like, what are you doing? I'm paraphrasing here. And he finally sees an angel that's blocking the way. And basically God in these two chapters gives the message. You can't bless. You can't curse what I bless. The children of Israel are blessed and you can't curse them. So you go to the king, but only speak what I'm going to tell you. So he goes and on three different attempts, He tries to curse the children of Israel and each effort of cursing. God puts a blessing in his mouth. Really cool Old Testament story. Read it sometime. Numbers 22 through 25. So when Balak realizes that his this guy he's hired is not doing the job, that there's this really heated exchange. They don't know what to do. But what happens in Numbers 25, if you can't beat them, you join them. So what what happens is. They, they come up with a strategy. I want you to get the most beautiful women of Moab. Uh, and we don't know all the details, but I can imagine when, when something like this, get the most beautiful women of the land, have them dress very provocatively and have them seduce the men of Israel as they come out. So read it. It's in Numbers 25. All of a sudden, the women seduce the men and they're like, all right, she's pretty. She worships other gods, but it's OK. I'll marry her and we'll, you know. And what happened is it God's wrath was unleashed. And many people died because of the judgment of God. And the idea was a little compromise. It it affects a lot of people. And I wasn't planning on saying this, but it came to me in the first service. I was a youth pastor for many years in my 20s and my teens. And I always had this analogy. My kids don't like it, but it gets the point across. And I said, imagine if I made you guys the best homemade brownies ever. And they're like, yes. You know, we can maybe put some marshmallow cream in it, some chocolate chips. And they're like, yes. So they start eating it. And I said, before you eat the next bite, I just want you to know a little secret of my recipe. Before you eat the next bite, I want you to know that I mixed it in a little of the puppy poo with the brownies. Would you eat the next bite? How many of you would eat, still continue to eat? Nobody, right? And here's the idea I gave to my kids and I used to give to my youth is that a little compromise messes up all of it. And when it comes to church, a little false doctrine, a little going away with the world, a little compromising my faith. And then you get these brownies that nobody wants to eat or you get a Christian that nobody wants to follow because they look too much like the world. Ouch. So that's the doctor of Balaam. And in Numbers 25, we see 24,000 people died because of this disobedient act of compromise. And then we have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Scripture says. And who are the Nicolaitans? Scholars have pr- proposed many different thoughts of the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly fully full picture because it's not in Scripture. It's just in church history. Um, most scholars believe that Nic- the Nicolaitans were the, those who had a secular worldview. 
It was those who said you could be a Christian, but yet you could live in compromise. It was kind of like easy believism. You can be saved and live like you want to. Anybody ever met like that? Well, I'm saved, so I can I can live like I want to. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the name Nicholas means one who conquers the people. So it's the idea that leaders would lord it over the followers. So the clergy had the power of the laity. And we see in church history what happened in church history. Some some of the people that became priests said, "Okay, don't read the scripture. Listen to me. And basically they had the power over the laity. So be careful when anyone advises you. I'm your spiritual father. You don't have to read the Bible. Listen to me. So be careful of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So the solution is to repent. He says, repent. And the idea of repentance is a change of mind with a change of action. I still remember when I was a teenager before I fully surrendered, I would commit something I knew was a sin and then I would go home and say, God, forgive me. And then I would do it again the next day. I had confessed it, but I had not repented of it. So here's the thing. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's a change of mind with a change of action. It's a change of belief with a change of behavior. So don't don't get that confused in your mind. It's not just confession. Repentance is doing an about face It's doing a 180. So he says, if you don't deal with this issue, he says, I'm going to come quickly. And remember, this is the Jesus with the sword picture. And here's the thing about theology. Let me give you just a little side issue of theology where theology can go astray is where we focus on one picture of Jesus, but we don't see all the pictures of Jesus. We love the picture of Jesus with the kids. We love the picture of Jesus with the lost sheep. But what about this picture of Jesus with the two-edged sword? We have to embrace that picture of Jesus also. Because he's not only the Savior, which he is, but he's also the judge. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So let us yield to his word and never compromise his word. And every Sunday I preach, I have some people on one side of the sword. They respond to it. They're excited about it. They're like, ouch, that hurt, but I'm aligning my life. And I have other people that get ticked off about the word of God. And what I tell them is I'm just the Domino's delivery boy. I'm the pizza delivery guy. I don't make the message. I just deliver it. If you don't like it, take it up with Jesus because it's his word. It's his word. Amen. So in your listening guide, I just want to bring application. What are some ways the church gets lukewarm, gets corrupted, gets in compromise. I, I think this, this may not be true for every church you've been in, but I've seen these six things happen, churches in America. The first one is division. If Satan can divide a church, he can make it weak. And a weak church is not effective in reaching people. The other one is gossip. How many of you have ever been a church that struggled with gossip? Everybody in here could raise their hand. If Christians talk about each other instead of praying together, instead of sharing their faith with the lost, what happens is the church becomes toxic. And people that visit that church said, I don't want anything to do with that. People treat me better at the bar than they do the church. And then the other one is laziness. Have you ever been in a church where the, the motto is hold on till Jesus comes? Like they have great doctrine. The theology is correct, but they're just lazy, spiritually lazy. And it's just... It's all about just comfort. And when that happens, the church becomes ineffective. The other one that's very prominent in many churches is self-focus. And the idea is it's all about the members. And if it's all about the members, church becomes more like a country club. And it's about the perks and benefits of membership. And if you do that, you lose the mission focus. 
and you have a mission drift and you forget about the great commission, which is to do what? Make disciples. The other one is doctrine. And we're seeing this in a lot of mainstream denominations. They have longstanding Christian values, things about marriage and morality and other things. And all of a sudden, because the world is adding pressure and they don't want to be persecuted, what do they do? They change their doctrinal stance they've had for thousands of years. Why? Because they don't want to be persecuted. If a church does that, it loses its spiritual power. It's no longer powerful and effective with the word of God. And finally, compromise. If Satan can get you to compromise in just one area of your life, he has a foothold in your life and he has a foothold in the church. So church, individually, let us not compromise. But as a church, let us hold true to the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. All right, the final must do. And by the way, you are like, this is heavy. I know it's heavy. It's revelation. It's supposed to be something we really weighty. But Jesus always, except for Laodicea, it ends with an encouragement, right? So what's the encouragement? Here's the encouragement. Listen to the spirit's encouraging promise. Overcome this wicked world and taste the blessing of the eternal world. So I heard a story from Greg Laurie about this massive redwood tree in California. This redwood tree had been there for 400 years. It had survived earthquakes. It had survived like wind gusts. It had survived rain and thunder and all this. And it was still there. But all of a sudden, this large redwood tree just fell down. And the scientists and the people that study this type of thing couldn't figure out what had happened. There was no lightning that struck it. It just had fallen over. And 400 years of history was lying down on the ground. And once they did a closer inspection, they found these tiny little beetles that made its way through the trunk, curved up the tree and began to eat at the life giving fiber of the tree. So the tree was not destroyed by outside things like earthquakes or thunder, but it was destroyed from within by these beetles that ate up the tree. And I just want to challenge all of you that we got to be careful and listen to the spirit, because if we're not careful, just little compromises can destroy giant towering leaders that we look up to. Most Christian leaders don't fall like that redwood tree because of something major that happened. It's just small compromises that add up. And before you know it, they're like, what happened to this person? So in verse 17, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So I want you to notice that this promise we're about to talk about is not only true for Pergamos, but it's all the churches, not just the seven churches, but it's all the churches of all time. And what is the promise? First of all, it says to him who overcomes, I will give to eat some of the hidden manna to eat. So for the modern America, we're like hidden manna. That makes no significance to me. Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament. How did God feed the children of Israel? Do man in the wilderness. And you're like, okay, I don't really need manna. I've got grocery store. I've got Ingalls Publix. Okay, big deal. Well, you go to John 6. There was a debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they said, Moses gave us food to eat in the desert. And Jesus said, it wasn't Moses. It was my father. And he said, by the way, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. So Jesus is the manna from heaven. So if you eat the physical manna of the world, it'll satisfy you temporarily But if you embrace and receive Christ, 
you are satisfied forever. So he is the living bread. He's the manna. So if you overcome the first promise is that you receive this intimate relationship with Jesus that lasts forever. We could just say amen and go home with that. But then he gives this other illustration. If you'll take out your white rock, those of you who didn't get one, ask the usher on your way out. By the way, don't eat this. We had some people in the first service stick it in their mouth. It's not a breath mint, okay? It's not a breath mint. We're not trying to tell you something. But this white rock, and you can research this on your own, scholars have a, a myriad of interpretations about this. And so what I want to do is give you some explanations and bring three applications that no matter which interpretation, these three apply throughout Scripture. So one one interpretation is the Old Testament high priest wore this vest and it had 12 stones on each with the, the children of Israel's names written on his chest. So one interpretation is that God holds you near and dear to his heart. That's one. The other one comes from the Roman world that whenever you are in jury... You're a juror and you had a judge and you were under trial. One of the practices that some courtrooms did is that the jurors would have a white rock and a black rock. And if you thought the person was innocent, you would put the white rock in one pail. If you thought they were guilty, you'd put a black rock in one pail. And if there were more white rocks than black rocks, you were acquitted. And if the judge himself put a white rock, the case is dismissed. So that's one. The other one came from the Olympic Games, that whenever you received a rock, sometimes it was white. The idea was you had a full all access pass into the games, into the festivities, and that you could just enjoy this this festival. So we don't know what Jesus exactly meant, but I'm going to give you three applications that all of these are true throughout Scripture. So the first application of your white rock is that you have a VIP all X access pass into the presence and paradise of God because of your relationship with Jesus. You remember the thief on the cross that repented? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So here's the idea. If you are in Christ, one day you will be with Christ in his presence. That's what the white rock can be a symbol of. The other one is it's a token of your forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross almost 2,000 years ago, he died not just for the past sins and the present sins, but he died for your sins and my sins. So the book of Hebrews tells us this, that by one sacrifice, one time dying on the cross, Jesus has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. You're like, what does that mean? That means that if you truly have received Christ, if you truly have, if you've truly been born again, all of your sins, past, present, future have been nailed to that cross. And you're like, well, why do I have to ask for forgiveness? It's a fellowship issue that if you are in sin and you're a Christian, you're going to feel conviction of your sin. And if you don't repent, as long as you're backslidden, there's a lack of fellowship. But you're still a son or daughter. Your sins are still taken to that cross. He just wants you to be cleansed. And the third application of this white rock, notice the scripture says, I'm going to write a new name on it, which only the one who receives it knows the name. So did you know that one day God's going to give you a new name? Did you guys know that? Every believer that overcomes is not just for the believers at Pergamos. It's to every everyone that overcomes. So here's the idea. Throughout the Bible, when God does a major work in a person's life, what do we often see happen to that person? 
they get a new name, right? We see um, Abraham became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. We see that we see that Jacob, who was a deceiver, manipulator at times, he becomes Israel. Fast forward to the New Testament. Simon, who does he become? Peter. Saul, what is his name? Sorry, Paul. So we see. So it's not just true for these key biblical figures. The idea of a new name represents a new identity that in your first birth, your parents gave you a name that gave you an identity for your parents. But whenever you're born again and you're following Jesus, Jesus and the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they also give you a new identity because you're now in Christ. Now, I don't know what that name is going to be. We don't know yet. But one day you're going to receive that white stone and you're going to have a new name. And here's what I think it implies, that God knows your potential. He knows your identity. He knows it better than anyone else. And you can take all these personality tests. They're all great. They all have their place. But only God knows what he made you for. And in heaven, you'll get to explore that forever. You'll get to be with the one who made you. And you'll get to explore the reason why he made you as you serve him throughout eternity. Amen. So keep that white rock as a reminder. So I want to summarize this into one big idea. Let's put the big idea on the screen. How can we move out of compromise and into conviction? It's this. Move out of compromise and into conviction by staying true to Jesus, even in the midst of a dark world. So I want to give you three action steps. They each start with an R. Sometimes pastors like to alliterate. I often don't, but sometimes I do. The first one is repent. If there is any compromise, and this message may not apply to you, but I know it applies to me. But if there's any compromise or temptation to compromise, confess that and come clean. Remember the story of the brownie, which you'll never forget. How many of you have heard that story before? Those who have worked in youth have heard it, right? <laughs> the rest of you, it's new. All right. The second R is to return. After I repent, I return to biblical convictions and holy living. And it doesn't mean that Christians are weird or out there or hitting some over the head with the KJV Bible in the street. It's not talking about that. It's talking about living the life. In First Peter, it says, as he who's called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So it's living the life. It's no longer allowing the world to call you a hypocrite because you're living a different set of beliefs. And the final R is to remain. Remain faithful until Jesus returns. And remaining faithful does not mean you sit on your blessed assurance hanging on to Jesus comes. It means you're actively serving him because remember, he's the one that knows your works and he's the one that's going to reward you for your works. So a little preview for next week. If you'll look on your listening guide and read ahead, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Come back next week, God willing, as we talk about Thyatira, we're going to talk about chasing the wrong star. Have you ever met anybody that was just misguided? And we're going to talk about instead of chasing the wrong star, chase after the morning star, which is who? Jesus himself. All right, let us pray.